Hello and welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Therese Freeman. One area that I've always been interested in is the world of espionage. What is it really like to be a spy? Is it like how they portray it in movies? In this next episode, we talk to Karen Schaefer, former Chief of Operations, Directorate of Science and Technology at the CIA, and she does not hold back. She discusses how growing up overseas helped prepare her to be an operations officer, aka agent, and she also gets real on how she navigated her 26-year career. And we hear about how she is using her past experience and expertise to consult and mentor others. In this conversation, you'll hear about what it takes to be successful in this type of career and get some behind-the-scenes info. Enjoy this episode. Okay, so let's uh, jump in. Maybe we'll just start with your most recent. I know you're in transition right now, and you're in your sort mm-hmm. of second career. So right. we can start there and maybe talk mm-hmm. about what you're doing right now sure. in retirement, if that works, yes. and and work and our sure. way back, if that's if that's amenable to you. Yeah, it is. I mean, I I think. Well, first, I, I what I would love to start with, yes. and I think. It's a challenge that so many people are facing right now, and it's also a realization. I think in particular, you're seeing waves of people that have stepped out of their previous jobs and are looking for something new and Mm -hmm. potentially better. That was a lot of what drove my decision-making when I left. I had a a wonderful career, which we can talk about. Um, As I mentioned to you earlier, Teresa, um, I was fortunate enough to land Um, very early in a career that I was passionate about and well-suited for, I believe. Um, And so I feel blessed that I had a 26-year career with the federal government. But um, like so many people, you know, so many of us did a lot of soul-searching during the pandemic. I realized I had a six-year-old. My husband had been Mr. Mom for six years. I was working 12-hour days, and as I was wrapping up, you know, an assignment, uh, a rotation over at the FBI. In fact, you know, my husband and I sat down and and tried to figure out, okay, you know, yes, I can continue to do this. And, you know, when, when I was discussing, you know, what was next with uh, the agency leadership, you know, and they were asking me what I might be interested in, I thought, you could rightly ask me as an SIS4, as a senior executive in the intelligence community, to take a job that would require me to continue to work 12-hour days, weekends, evenings, because we have, you know, our partners coming in from overseas. Not quite as much during the pandemic, obviously, but then also traveling to the regions that you might be responsible for. And I could do it. I could absolutely stay on that treadmill. I could keep... But, you know, when my husband and I discussed it and, and I just said, you know, I, I it's time for me to do something different. And, you know, lots of people, I'm very proud of everything I did, but there's nothing that I did in the organization that somebody else wasn't capable of stepping in and doing equally well or perhaps even better, um, whereas I was the only person that could be my son's mother. And so for me, it ended up being a really interesting choice. And I think it's important. You know, I grew up, and Teresa, I I suspect we're about the same age, and and you benefited from these incredible women who came before us, who who sort of paved the way. And I remember walking into the agency and having all these women say, we just passed this class action suit. We have paved the way for you. 
you now can have it all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what I realized, and, and that was the choice that I made when I stepped down is you, you can absolutely, and this is when I, I mentor quite a few young women, but I tell them you can have it all. You just cannot have it all at the same time. And I think we, at least for me, I can't speak to what your experience may have been, but given where you worked previously, I'm sure you felt the same stresses. I think there's this unordinate level of expectation that we as women in particular have placed on ourselves to be the super executive, the super mom, the super spouse. And that's just not, in my estimation, that is not sustainable, even when you compartmentalize, which I was very, very good at doing. Right. So, so anyway, it was a great decision on my part. I have zero regrets. I, you know, as most people, I miss the people. I do not miss the demands on my time and what, you know, what this transition bought me was time with my family, which was extraordinary, perhaps a little, as I joke, it's like the monkey paw. I wanted more time with my son, perhaps not a year and a half lockdown with a six-year-old boy. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. Not want to sit in front of an iPad and learn anything from any teacher. So I maybe would not have chosen that path, but nevertheless, you you work with what you're given. And uh, so it's been wonderful. And in, in addition, the other great thing is I've been able to do a lot of different things. You know, I was joking before the plethora of options. So I'm on a couple of nonprofit boards. First and foremost, I'm on uh, Third Option Foundation's nonprofit board, which is a organization that supports our paramilitary officers that were Mm. killed and wounded in action and their families. And then I'm also on the the advisory board for the International Spy Museum, which is loads of fun. And I get to talk to lots of young people and, and hopefully inspire young people to take an active role in national security, which is so incredibly important and hopefully inspire women who might not otherwise see themselves in this kind of a role to consider this kind of a role. And then I'm also doing, I just started to get back now that my son, it looks like fingers crossed, um, will actually be in school. I've started to do a little bit of consulting and also exploring other for-profit boards. So uh, that's in the context of sort of the larger picture, but I, one of the things that I'm doing quite often and is one of the most enjoyable things is I do a ton of mentoring. I have all these young people reaching out to me either through, I speak at, I've spoken at Georgetown and GW and George Mason. So a lot of the, uh, the students will reach out to me or even I'm, I'm incredibly impressed with all the young people. Now I, the chutzpah that they have, they just reach out on LinkedIn. Here's my, when you joked earlier about, you know, my resume, I, I read these kids resume and I cannot, you know, I've started my own nonprofit. I've raised millions of dollars for starving children in Africa. And I'm thinking, you know, I got up and made breakfast. I know. <laughs> so, I know. So it is, it's, it's amazing. And it's been so fun because it reminds you of why you loved what you did and why you, you know, why I got into the agency and why I chose that work and, and to be able to talk about it and you know, encourage kids to young people. They're not kids, they're young right. people, but to, to look for opportunities. It has just been so much fun. It's so interesting. I think when you talk about that intersection of figuring out, is it time to leave? So I just, I've been working on writing something and knowing when to leave 
is a hard thing. And people, I think, are often used to having to be pushed out of an organization, mm-hmm. right? It's time, either their timetable. And I think everything that you talked about is very familiar to me. My, my Both my husband and I had been in professional services and we had just outsourced everything. And right. so we had a very similar conversation of, we have three kids, three boys. And so it was like, we made a choice to have these kids. <laughs> so mm-hmm. at what point are you shortchanging that experience in, in exactly what you described, which is such great opportunities. And I loved my job and I loved working in professional mm-hmm. services and I felt so challenged and validated and all the things that are right. great about Likewise. a successful career. And so it's hard to say that is it time to leave and when is it time to leave and what's the best thing for for your family. And I love what you said, too, about you can kind of have it all. My husband says all the time, like you can have anything you want, not necessarily everything you want. And so it's, you know, again, that timeliness of making those choices. So you worked for the CIA for 26 years. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I sure did. And that's uh, that's got to be an exciting career. And I think I mentioned to you via email that we, you're right first. I've talked to Josh, uh, <laughs> obviously from the FBI perspective, and he, we didn't get to, I mean, we talked a little bit about some of his cases and work, but, but you're my first CIA agent. And I, so I grew up in McLean. So excited. <laughs> I know, I know. I Hopefully it will do the organization justice. <laughs> oh, I'm sure well. it's a fantastic organization. And I, I honestly, I can't imagine any better place to, to spend a career. Yeah. So I grew up in McLean and it's so funny Mm -hmm. because Ah. a lot of my friends' parents worked for the state department (laughs) and then to find, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, exactly. And then, you know, it's funny, we're all graduating and parents are retiring. And then it came to fruition that a good a good many of my friends' parents were actually worked for the agency. So right. I feel like there's this, like, I have this connection point to it, although I still don't mm-hmm. really know what happens there. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about, you said you knew that's what you wanted to do. And so yeah. maybe talk just yeah. about your path to the CIA and then maybe, because that 25 years is a long time, but maybe pick a couple of the roles that you really enjoyed and how you navigated right. that career path. Yeah, I was laughing when uh, you and I were chatting earlier and I I was chatting with your assistant, Missy, Missy, and uh, we were, uh, you know, one of the questions you asked me to think about was a typical day in the life. And and that's the fabulous part about the organization. You know, I tell people if you're bored, you're doing something wrong because this is the kind of organization where truly every couple of years you get a chance to to reinvent yourself. I started out, I was fortunate, again, I grew up um, in Latin America. Okay. Um, so I spent most of my formative years, my father was State Department, so we followed him around. We, I was born in Mexico and we lived in Honduras, Argentina, Chile, and so loved that. And it was an incredible experience. And even at a very young age, what I knew is that I had loved living overseas, learning about new cultures. I am absolutely one of those people that's very intellectually curious, not the smartest person in the room, but but definitely the one that typically asks the most questions. So, yep, so yep. Uh, 
so I knew I wanted to do something in international relations. I ended up I ended up going locally to the University of Virginia for for school. I had gone to and uh, so I studied international relations and I double majored in Spanish because I had grown up speaking Spanish. So as I, as we joke, you know, I sort of cheated, you know, hice trampa because it's not like I, I actually had to, like so many of my friends learn it from scratch. I, I sort of came by it honestly and was certainly preparing myself for that path so that I could explore that opportunity. So I, you know, when I graduated, I was looking at the agency, at State Department, a couple of other options. But then I was also thinking that because I love talking and engaging with people. So I thought, well, maybe law school, international law. Um, I did work um, for about six months uh, for Baker and Botts as in Secretary Baker's firm. So Mm -hmm. very wonderful firm. But it was six months enough to know that I did not want to be a lawyer. And so so it was a sort of a natural fit for me. And that's what I say, you know, for young people, I, I, I can't imagine that struggle of trying to decide where your heart, you know, where you are going to, to really fit. Because for me, it was really very obvious from very early in my life. I will say that doesn't, just because I wanted it, didn't mean I thought I would get it. And so I was incredibly thrilled when I was selected and brought on. I essentially, you know, I did a few small temp work in the early 90s, but really it was just waiting while my application was processed. So I I started at the agency, I think at the tender age of about 22 years old. So I I did it for a a good part of my life. And when that that recruitment process, they they come to campus, right? I I, I actually started and yeah, I started my career in campus recruiting. So I spent a lot of time seeing other places, you know, recruiting on campus. And so did it start there for you in terms of, Um, or because of your parents, was Mm -hmm. there some connection point too that maybe helped? No, no. My dad was actually overseas at the time. My parents ended up uh, divorcing. So um, no, I did it. You know, uh, they showed up at campus. Everything was hard copy, very, you know, (laughs) shrouded in mystery and secrecy. And, and one of the things that I do think is pretty fabulous now, and, and, you know, I always encourage young people, we've gotten smarter in the age of technology as an agency of sharing information that at least allows people to make informed decisions. But if you're at all interested, we have a great website as does FBI, because I also am very partial to my FBI brethren that I worked with for a couple but I always encourage people, you know, there's a website, it'll explain the different career tracks. It will also talk about the organization, its mission, its roles throughout the world. It will provide recommended reading lists, which I think there's no better way than to hear mm. it from folks who have actually yeah. done the work. Um, so I always tell young people I'm mentoring, you know, Take a look at the website, explore what you think looks interesting, and then, you know, take a look at the recommended reading list because they they curate that pretty closely to, to try to give, An in particular, young people as best a sense as possible of the careers that they might be embarking on. Um, and that was, none of that was available to me when I was graduating. I just happened to be fortunate enough that I had grown up overseas. I had grown up in that culture. And to your point, you know, most of us, particularly, I think from our generation, 
did tend to sort of follow in our parents' footsteps because that's what we knew. That's what we understood. Right. That was our our comfort zone. So I was certainly a product of that. Did you know in the beginning that you wanted to do, and I don't know the right way to characterize it, so I will say, like, I saw Operations Officer, I think right. Clandestine, yes, I think yeah. maybe the right. Covert, uh, if those are right. some of the right. Did you know immediately that was of interest? I think so. Yeah. I mean, like my, I always joke that my son has a bias for action, but I, I think he gets it honestly. And so candidly, yeah. uh, you know, I'm somebody that is really, I'm very, I consider myself very much a people person. I thrive, I am an extrovert, but by no means, I'll just caveat, no means do you have to be an extrovert to be an operations yeah. officer. But I knew that my passion is derived from dealing with people, intersecting with people, learning about cultures, engaging. And so I knew that I was a much better fit for the operations officer side of the house than anything else. And, and frankly, my, you know, I had studied international relations, spoke Spanish. So these were all things that yeah. made me more competitive from, from that, for that side of the house. And, you know, I, would like to say that I, I could possibly have been on the analytical side, but those folks are brilliant. A lot of those folks have studied a lot more than I did. They have their master's, their PhD. Um, you know, I'm not sure that I would hold the candle to a lot of those folks on, on our analytical side of the house. And those would probably have been the most natural fits for me, given my work, you know, my life experience and my educational background at the time. But as I said, I just, you know, it felt right. Yeah. It felt like that was, and I also knew I wanted to spend the preponderance of my career overseas. And that's really the case officer role that does that. So when I think about that and I think about people that may be interested in it's like what would mm -hmm. prevent someone from really pursuing that? So if I think about it when you're there, when you're newly admitted, let's mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. I suspect there's a fair amount of training <laughs> and education that happens, right? To, so because I think there's probably fear, right, of, of safety for sure. Mm -hmm. And then also just it because it's less known and, and on purpose, sure. There is a, you know, well, if I, if I can't be well informed or I don't know what I'm getting into, then I might not pursue it. So maybe you could like, to the extent that you can decode yeah. some of that. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, Visit www.teresafreemanassociates.com for more information. I think, and, and I think I'm struck in particular, I'm glad you asked this question because I'm struck in particular, uh, and I think that that issue prevents in particular a lot of young women yeah, yeah. from applying. And, and understandably so. So here's what, I, and, and we do get, for obvious reasons, we do get a lot of previous law enforcement and military officers who have the expertise, you know, who have had that experience. Right. And, you know, so they are less intimidated and, you know, feel like, hey, yeah, I can check that box. And I guess what I would say is, I promise you that you do not have to come with a set of 
Jason Bourne-esque <laughs> skills under your belt before you apply. You know, what I try to remind people all the time is that the world is a very diverse place. And so we need a set of operations officers who look different, speak differently, have different skill sets, and who also, you know, we need both the introverts and the extroverts because we need a little bit of everything that can interact with our target set overseas. Mm -hmm. And what that also means is that we don't expect people to show up at the agency knowing how to do clandestine operations. We invest, I, I actually think one of the greatest things about the agency is how much time and energy they invest on the very front end mm -hmm. of, of your career in making sure that you are capable. And I will use myself as an example. I absolutely had lived overseas. I probably knew a bit more than most people do about what you know, what that life is going to be like. But beyond that, you know, I was a, you know, kid that had grown up in the suburbs in Northern Virginia. Yeah. You know, I played sports. I, I was, you know, I had no credentials. I, I think I said, you know, I was yeah. 22 years old. I had no work experience, although I had lived overseas and, and spoke another language. And they took me and transformed me into someone who in my very first tour was able to deploy to what was then the highest threat post in the world. And I was able to conduct clandestine operations securely, confidently because of all the training mm -hmm. I had been given. I mean, obviously you build your confidence as you go. My very yeah. first car meeting, I was terrified <laughs> as you should be, right? Because right. you're thinking, have I done it? You know, what did I forget? You know, I'm sure I forgot something. Um, but but they really give you the skills. Um, they provide you, you know, I had this incredible training session beyond just our tradecraft training, yeah. which teaches you the clandestine uh, skill set. They also gave us, you know, and at the time I was the only woman in it, but they gave us this extended course on defensive driving and on hand-to-hand -hand compact self-protection mm. and firearms. And so I felt very confident when I stepped into that role that I could protect myself. And, you know, then obviously once you get on the ground, they make sure you spend a lot of time knowing your environment, understanding, you know, where you should go, where you shouldn't go, all that sort of thing. So so I guess what I would say to every young person that yep. questions whether this is a suitable career for them, if it's something you're passionate about, if it's something that that you're interested in, don't assume that you're not qualified. I will say, you know, you're going to want to do well in school, learning <laughs> it's languages. Competitive, right? Yeah. Critical. It's yeah. very. It's it is absolutely competitive. We're not going to take you know, anybody yeah. off the street and, and it feels like it gets more and more competitive. I'm, I'm always amazed, you know, as my husband and I joke, he went to Penn, I went to UVA, neither of us would get into our schools these days. And yeah. similarly, I wonder if I would get into the agency these days. So I'd like to think I would, but who, who knows? The, the, the caliber of young person is pretty extraordinary. When you're on an assignment, are you alone or do, is there a team of people? Like, are you isolated? It really depends. 
Yeah. Yeah, it really depends. Initially, typically most of your work, especially when you first start out as an operations officer, your apps, you are typically on your own meeting one-on-one with your assets. And so again, all of these skills that they taught you become crucial in not only maintaining your safety, but you also have this moral obligation to this person who has agreed to work for the U.S. government to keep them safe. And so those skills absolutely become, they're an imperative part of the job. And, you know, I can't, I cannot stress enough what an amazing job I think the agency does in training. Training and development. there are shortcomings. It's it's not typically because the training wasn't adequate. It's usually human error or what we call the tradecraft drift when people, you know, will cut corners for time, uh-huh. you know, expediency, et cetera. And, and those are typically the, when you have problems, that's typically, and you go back and, and try to dissect where mm-hmm. things may have gone wrong. It, you know, it's typically due to to those kinds of uh, decisions made by the the officers. Right, like um, in the moment. Executing the operations, right. Yeah. And then how about, so having to live, maybe, I, I, again, I don't know that I fully understand it, but let's say, let's say you're on assignments Mm -hmm. and then you come back from that. It's like assignment driven, right? So it's not, and Mm -hmm. that there's a rotation component to that. And it so is. there's two questions, I guess. One, you know, how do you the compartmentalize of like, this is my mm-hmm. career and I can't really talk about it to anybody, maybe internal to the organization you can, but certainly externally you have to have sort of mm-hmm. a different avatar, <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. And I don't, that conflict, right? Like, I, I think the mental health component of this is also like, mm-hmm. I'm super curious about that. Just mm-hmm. how you sustain that when there's a lane that's somewhat duplicitous, right? If that's the nature of the work yeah. and what makes you yeah. good at your job, right? Right. No, and, and it's it's an important question. And and not surprisingly, a, a lot of the young people I mentor ask the ask same thing. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, especially when you are first starting out and you're learning how to live undercover, it is it is challenging and and like everything you get better with it with age but yeah again they will when you're hired they obviously assign you your cover and they they'll typically provide you tricks of the trade but a lot of it rests on your it's your responsibility to understand you know my cover was department of state so they obviously gave us an indoctrination and whatnot. And I was fortunate that I went through State Department training before I went on my tour. So I actually had State Department friends and um, had had no kidding gone through the training and could talk the talk and walk the walk. So they, in that regard, are able to assist you with, you know, living your cover. But you're right, there are and, you know, this goes in that bucket of what I consider those necessary sacrifices yeah. that you make that it, you're exactly right. You are you're not going to tell all your friends and family where you work. You know, the organization obviously is not going to tell you not to tell your significant other. They expect it. And we are much smarter now about how we leverage family precisely for some of the things that you've 
talked about mm. mental health. You know, if your whole family isn't part of the organization, that's a problem because they they need to be able to support you. They need to be able to enable you to do your mm. operational work overseas in particular. Um, and so it, it, that becomes a critical component. Typically, you don't tell your children simply because, you know, depending on maturity level, you know, you don't want to put them in a position where they have to keep secrets that they're really not capable of keeping. Right. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's a, a good enough reason not to put them in a position where, where they can make those kinds of mistakes. Um, so you do learn to compartment sort of, you know, certain aspects of the job. But, I, you know, what I say and it's, it's, you know, again, it's one of those necessary aspects of the job that are imperative to keep you safe, to keep your family safe, and again, to keep the people who you are ultimately responsible for that are cooperating with the U.S. government safe. And so, so it really, it, it becomes surprisingly easier as you go along in your career. And, and the other thing that's, that's heartening is that, you know, especially when you're in an embassy community and, and if you're in ones that are have high morale, you have a whole team of folks there who help support you. Mm-hmm. I, I worked very closely with my State Department colleagues. They would invite me to different events. I would, you know, host and sponsor events and they would come and they help you maintain your cover. They will enable you to have access to things that you might not otherwise have access to. So, so, you know, yes, um, on some level it's up to you, but you do have, you know, the agency that helps, helps you build that cover. Then you also have your colleagues who will be supportive of you as well. So, so there, you're not completely, completely cut off from the rest of the world so that you have no, you know, support network. Yeah. And just speaking or taking that a step further, because you asked about the mental health question, I, um, and this is a slightly different angle on it, but I think it's really important to hit on is that I think one of the things that we've learned, especially after 9-11 is to to really focus so much more on the family and to focus much more on mm-hmm. mental health and well-being. We have resiliency groups that were set up. We set up, you know, an entire um, entity that was focused on supporting family while their while their spouses were or deployed. significant others were deployed to the war zones. So I think, you know, as an organization, it is much different than the organization, you know, even that I started with. We've mm-hmm. gotten you know, I don't know if enlightened is the right word. We, mm. we still don't get it all right, but, you know, we are much smarter and in confronting the challenges because it does take its, you know, yeah. it can absolutely take its toll and, and people can react differently to the stresses of living overseas. I mean, I myself, I, I can remember after my first tour, I didn't come home for almost you know, 18 months before my first break. And I remember my sister was laughing at me because we're in, you know, over, she lived out, you know, in Chantilly and I'm getting in and locking the doors, rolling up the windows. And she's like, I don't lock my front door. You know, And I said, I'm sorry, I'm decompressing. You know, I mean, you definitely don't realize the impact that being deployed can have, but as I said, there there are support networks there 
that didn't even exist when I was there, which is very encouraging to me that we've gotten so much smarter about it. And maybe on the flip side, because I know we've talked a couple of questions just more about maybe some of the things that are either stereotypes or just, you know, some of the things Mm -hmm. that people need to think through on the, on the fulfillment side and Mm -hmm. on the, you know, maybe you could talk about an experience. I don't know how much you can share, but where you felt really fulfilled in that space in terms of an accomplishment that she made. I think, you know, one of the things that Josh said to me when, when he talked about you, he's like, you know, she's a true patriot and that feeling of like being able to tie what you do to, you talked about national security and that being a link of, you know, your career, you know, sort of wrapped in that or, or as that, as the backdrop, like, I think there's a lot, to say for that and and in terms mm-hmm. of the fulfillment factor and feeling like you did your part. So maybe just if you could talk right. about an experience where that went well for you and you felt good yeah. about what you accomplished. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the, the good news story there is that I, I have a lot yeah. of incredible experiences. You're right. I, I can't talk about most of them, but I, I mean, just to give your folks a sense, I mean, yeah. I think one of the things, whenever I talk to young people, you know, about pursuing a career in national security, whether it is with the agency or with, you know, FBI mm-hmm. or other organizations, the military, you know, I say, I, I tell them that it's incredible to be a part of something more important than yourself. Mm-hmm. And I can truly say that I, I, I just was always gobsmacked by the fact that this organization had so much trust and confidence in me and allowed me to go and had the faith in me that sometimes, you know, especially when I was first starting out, I I didn't always necessarily even have in myself. Um, So, you know, I I guess if I had to pick one and and I'm going to pick this one in particular, just because I've been grieving like so many other folks watching what's happening in Afghanistan, but I did, you know, I, I went in very early in Afghanistan and I went in when in 2002, right after all of the the paramilitary officers in the military had had really routed the Taliban and, and it was such a time of hope and excitement and enthusiasm. And I remember in particular one instance, you know, just meeting with these women who had been part of the Loya Jurga, which is the initial, it's sort of the governing council and, and Hamid Karzai, who was the president at the time, had appointed women. And it was so groundbreaking because, you know, under the Taliban rule, women had had no role. And and I just remember sitting with them and talking to them about how we could help enable um, Stability. You know, our job was not obviously as an agency to promote democracy and do all of those things. It was, right. it was much more subtle. But underneath it, I mean, there was there were aspects of our job that were to figure out how to how to promote the stability so that they you know so that that government could really get its feet on the ground. And hearing those women talk and and feeling like even if I had played this tiny little part, which is all it was, I mean, I I was there and I helped set up one of our bases. And, but even if I just was able to do this tiny little part of it to, to help them, you know, um, meet their objectives so that their lives and the lives in particular of their daughters were better. um, 
it's just an incredible feeling as a woman to step in that kind of environment, which is literally biblical. You know, you look around and the only reason you don't think you're, you know, in BC times is because there's satellite dishes on top of the mud homes. It's just, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, and I will say this, that, you know, as tragic and as saddened as I am by the events, the recent events in Afghanistan, I hold on to the hope that, you know, some of those young women for yeah. at least these 20 years had a better life and that maybe some of them will, you know, through the education they were able to pursue, through the opportunities they were given that that somehow they will continue to have a better life, whether it's, you know, in Afghanistan where they push for change inside their own country or if they're able to leave and and start new somewhere else with skills and education that they never would have received then. You know, so it's a, a, a very small thing, but that's what I hold on to. But there are so many experiences like that, you know, as a case officer that, you know, that I was a case officer and operations officer, but then also, you know, in, in touching on some of my other jobs and, and these are, are slightly different, but, you know, I, I was down in the White House at the NSC. I did a rotation down there and was in charge of the president's covert action programs while I was there. And so I was able to sit in on the discussions and the planning for the Osama bin Laden upper I was, as at the time, I was a younger officer. So as I like to joke, I was the glorified uh, stapler, stapler hey, copier and take uh, note taker. But I don't care. I yep. would have made copy if that's what it took <laughs> because it was absolutely an extraordinary experience to even be, you know, in a support role enabling those policymakers because it was so, the operation was so compartmented. There were a very small group of us that did that. Um, And I guess like closing out my, one of my last assignments, I loved, you know, we were mentioning, we have a a friend in common, Josh, who was one of the executive assistant directors that I worked with at the FBI. And you know, finding ways, you know, to better collaborate and to better get after the terrorist target, the counterintelligence target that we were reeling during, you know, our our time up there in dealing with the Russia interference, Russian interference and China. And just knowing that perhaps some of the things that he and I and several others up there did enabled better collaboration between agencies so that we are more effective as a government as a whole. That's a little more esoteric. It's not the same as being on the ground, but, but in some ways um, it can be more enduring in terms of the impact that can have ironically. Yeah. Less sounds a lot less sexy to the listener, but in some ways, again, a more durable impact. And I love the, each of your examples paints a picture, right, in terms of different points along the way, how you were able to influence that. I would be remiss. Missy asked me to make sure that I asked you about Zero Dark Thirty and how <laughs> accurate <laughs> that film well, was. So I'm, I was like, I can't yeah. leave this interview without asking, yeah. especially now that you said you were involved. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at
Yes. So, well, I wasn't in, involved in the operation <laughs> side. I was involved on the policy, policy yeah. side. So a subtle but important difference. <laughs> um, but I, I did have the good fortune to know the folks that were involved. Um, I think it did... Um, in my estimation, look, I, I mean, you, you have to always make it screen adaptable. Right. So they're always, been, yeah. you know, the heroine is going to be outsized. I, I will say this, the woman who was the targeter, who with like, she was unrelenting in her pursuit of this, you know, of this target set. I think, you know, like so many, she was very motivated for the, from having lost friends in the coast bombing, it just exacerbated a lot of the passion that there was to identify and bring to justice Osama bin Laden. So so I think she, in, in terms of how important she was, I, I think that's really well done. She obviously didn't do all of the things that, you know, yeah. they you know, she wasn't out with the SEAL teams. And and also, you know, again, the SEAL component, rightfully so, they, they executed the operation. But, but in my estimation, the real story, the really fascinating stuff is all of the interagency work that went on for yeah, years. Can't even, yeah. I mean, excruciating, like connect the dots that are, it's so challenging. You know, people say, why 10 years? Oh my goodness. If you had an appreciation for the level of security that these guys had and how careful they were, you know, it was literally picking dots one every couple years out of the ether and saying, wait a minute, what about this guy? Right. Or, hey, why is he, why, during this debriefing, why is he not telling us about this guy? You know, and then piecing, and and that's the work that, that not just the agency targeters, but a huge call out to, you know, the interagency, again, NSA, exquisite analysts, mm-hmm. you know, NGA with the incredible Im- imagery analyst analysis. There's just, you know, and this is why I joke that I'm such a serial collaborator. And, you know, the, hey, the yeah. best part, you know, is, is that you really do realize that you need just all of the tools at the table to be incredibly effective. And I, I think that operation just exemplifies what this country is able to accomplish when yeah. everybody sits down the table and really puts organizational, shall we say, rivalry agenda, right? Yeah. Yeah. And just focuses on the mission because, boy, there's more than enough mission to be had. Yeah. I mean, I, I still worry quite a, in particular, I worry a tremendous amount about China and Russia and the impact that that's going to have, um, not just on our national security, but really potentially on our way of life. We're already seeing. Yeah the impact some of their disinformation has had. So, so okay, I have so many more questions. We don't have a ton of time, <laughs> but I, I guess the, the one that you've talked a bit about and I think might be close to your heart. So I, I definitely want to talk about being a woman and navigating your career. Mm-hmm. And maybe the best way to ask the question is, you know, what are three characteristics, competencies, traits that mm-hmm. served you well in navigating your career and and the you know 
it's an interesting thing for me personally, like in terms of identifying with being a woman. And, you know, I think given when I started my career, I didn't want to be associated with being a woman. I just wanted to be associated with doing a good job. And that's, that was like, the proof is in the work that I do. And you can, you right. And I tried to not even really, like, I didn't join the women's initiative. Like I, like, I just was like, I'm going to be a good, like, just do my thing. And I, and after reflection, and now that I'm more mature and I see the value in, there is an important part of me that is female and there is an important part of how that served me and how I served other people behind me. Right. So, but I am curious for you, what would you say particular to being a woman or not, however you feel about Mm -hmm. that, right. In terms of what served you well. Yeah. So I'll kind of like any good uh, case officer, I will uh, (laughs) answer the question that I wish I were asked because I'm going to just take a slight. Please do. So I'll, I'll sort of blend two questions. Your yep. question, which is what are some of the skills that I think have served me well? But then I will also, based on your last comment, say what are the things that I wish that I had done? Because I wouldn't change anything that I did, but I often think that I would change how I did it. Mm, and okay. that's an important distinction because look you're a tapestry of your experiences you can't you know both the good and the bad you can't go look back and have regrets that oh gosh if I had done that because every one of those regrets you know everything that I did led to a learning experience that allowed me to grow so I guess the first thing I would say just in terms of being successful in this career and I mean this in, in particular operationally but also just learning to be politically savvy in an organization because that is a necessary, you know, whether you like it or not. And I, I, I've never been a schmoozer like you. I was never the one that went to coffee. You know, I was like, I'm here to work and I'm, you know, like I need to get in and out. I want to have other things in my life. So, so I would say, and I, I think this is true of everything we do in life, being a good listener And by this, you know, and I never understood this until I really put it into practice is and not just listening so that when somebody else is done talking, it's your time to speak, actually listening and hearing what people are saying. I think um, one of the things that I have found and, and it's one of the reasons that I think women are particularly good at at being operations officers is because we tend to be better listeners and we also tend to pick on pick up on not just verbal cues but nonverbal cues mm-hmm. and I, I'm not saying this you know obviously there are plenty of men right. that are wonderful listeners yeah. and very effective communicators but I think as a general rule women you know have been taught to listen and to be in a way that men just are not taught. So, so I think that is, is such an important quality. So whether you're male or female, teaching yourself how to be a good listener so that you're really, really hearing and understanding what the person is saying is so critical. As I said, both operationally, but as you step into management roles, really hearing what your subordinates and your peers and your, you know, supervisors are telling you about your performance or lack thereof. So important. The other thing I would say, and I alluded to this, you know, I am a serial collaborator. And I think that 
even though so much initially in an operations officer's career you do on your own, you really are never alone. <laughs> and what I mean by that is to be really good, you have to be a good team player. You have to get along with people. You have to learn how to be able to work, not just, you know, you can't just be the awesome fighter pilot. You have to be able to come back into the office, work well with teams. And at your peril, you don't do this because even though you might do a lot of your operations on your own, you know, just with your asset, at the end of the day, what you get from your coworkers is this plethora of ideas, brainstorming. You know, we've talked about that, but I'm such a big believer yeah. in the wisdom of the crowds. Yeah. There are about 30 different ways to come at a problem and or a challenge. And if you're not working well with your teammates, if you can't grab them, if you guys can't sit down and swap ideas and plagiarize shamelessly, if you can't share yeah. best lessons learned, you are missing out. You know, I used to do nothing but read. I would, I would say, who do you think are the best um, when I was in training, who do you think are the best operations? And I would read everything they wrote just to understand how did they think? How did they execute this? How did they develop this source? Because I wanted to suck everything out and, and, you know, learning to understand that it's not about you, but it's about this whole network of people because also taking that one step further, you know, you're only as good as the people you're working with. You have this whole crew of people, your support officer, you know, uh, your uh, what we call chief management, chief, you know, management officer, which, you know, does uh, works on the reporting that you've written. Um, just there's this whole team targeters who help you decide who you should be potentially engaging and why and potentially how you should engage them. I mean, it is, even though at the end of the day, you're the one that steps out, there's this whole team you've got yeah. to be able to work with. So I think, you know, being a good collaborator and team player is essential. And here's the one, the last one that I'll hit on in the interest of time, but, yeah. um, and it's one where I, I would argue I failed miserably. You know, I was from my, my first 10 years, I was completely unencumbered. I was single overseas. I had no children, no spouse, and I could work 14 hour days, 20 hour days, no problem. I came back from the field with that same mindset and you were either all in or you were dead to me. <laughs> and <laughs> let me just tell you how well that went over with the poor people that were stuck with me as a first line manager and supervisor, I had zero empathy. And I can remember even joking about it. Like, well, again, you know, like I, I pulled myself up from my bootstraps, blah, blah. Fast forward about five years when I am married, just gave birth to a child, have to go back to work after six weeks and can't stop crying and have a mother who's just, I've just put in a nursing home and has Alzheimer's and I have all of this and I'm walking back into the office <laughs> and suddenly I'm realizing, yeah. oh my God, I was such a jackass. These poor people that worked, I had no empathy. And I mean, I've learned as I've you know grown right. as a person Empathy plays such a huge role well beyond just your ability to manage and, and get along with people. But but 
in particular, as you as you move along in your career, understanding that everybody walks in to your environment with their own story and yeah. it is not your story and what you may be capable of or what you may be able to contribute necessarily will be different than what the person next to you is able to do. And it is not because they're any less driven, any less devoted, any less patriotic. It's because life happens and suddenly you don't have a choice but to drop everything and run to your mother who's just been hospitalized, you know, for whatever. You drop everything because they call you and tell you your son is at daycare and has a temperature of 102. And I wish so desperately that I had been more empathetic. I had been better, you know, before, you know, and like so many people, it had to slap me in the face. It had to affect me personally before I had the necessary empathy and compassion that I wish I had had so much more of throughout, particularly the earlier part of my career. And one final point, I'm sorry, one final point I'll say on the empathy is, and this is particularly true of women, oh my goodness, I think we are particularly hard on ourselves. So that empathy extends to yourself. God, I can just remember crucifying myself for, you know, every presentation that wasn't flawless, every, it's like, if I could tell myself one thing, it's going back and saying, oh my God, be a little easier on yourself. You are so tough. And yes, there are lessons to be learned, but it doesn't mean that, you know, everything's going to come to a full stop just because you've made one small error or, you know, feel like you've taken a wrong direction in this, you know, things have a way of working out, particularly if, you know, you show up and you're committed. It's so interesting. It's like full circle to your earlier comments around there's a place for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on your background and your story and what you have to offer. I think that is so true. And that means everything about you, right? Your, Mm -hmm. your familial obligations, it means what boundaries you have for your own life around the things that are important to you. Like it's holistic. And I think you and I seem to have grown up or been sort of developed similarly in terms of like, (laughs) you know, hard charger wins at the end of the day. Right. And, and that culture of, of success and what it means to do that. And I loved your honesty about where you were and where you are now with the empathy. And I, I think it's so critical for people to hear that both women and men, right? Because I think depending where you are, just the idea that you can learn and you can change, you don't always have to be the same. Right. And I think you answered so funny. Typically I ask a soft skills question, but I think you answered that based, you know, on, on your comments. You talked a lot about collaboration, which I think is so important to, to be successful. And you gave great examples of that. So I, I really appreciate your time. I feel like we could have a whole nother conversation about lots of different <laughs> things. So maybe I'll come back around if you're open to it. But yes, I would love that. And and hopefully some of this scratched the itch. Um, yeah. You know, 
I can't close out without saying, you know, again, what I just think, you know, serving your country is an opportunity like no other. And, and you know, as I often do with, with all these opportunities to talk about yeah. my career, I will extend a, an invitation if, if folks want to reach out to me. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn and I am always happy to talk to you or any of your listeners about a career, both at the agency, I, I've actually done quite a bit of <laughs> recruiting and directing of people towards FBI based on, again, that, yeah. that whole, of like, what are your goals? What, you know, what are your red lines? And, you know, do you have a family? And, and because it, there are things you need to think about as, as you go into these jobs and, and they have different demands. Um, and yeah. you, you should, you, you have to factor all of those in as you make your choices. I think, you know, you can manage them, but, you know, in this day and age, uh, it, it, you have the opportunity to reach out and, and really ask some of those questions. Uh, and please, please do, because I, I'm happy to answer to the extent that I can. I, my, my experience is certainly not what everybody's experience has been, but I can share what I know and hopefully at least answer some questions folks may have. That's so generous of you. And I will be connecting with you for sure on LinkedIn. <laughs> not that I want to pursue a career, but now that we're connected, I'm not letting you go. Yeah, that is fine. I am happy. I, you know, I just, you know, I, I feel so fortunate. It's great. And I do think that, you know, one of our, our challenges in life is to figure out how do we give back and, and my Agreed. give back hopefully is, is being able to help people find their way when it can be so overwhelming otherwise. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Teresa. Great to meet you. And I'm, I'm so happy that uh, Josh made the connection. <laughs> Me too, for sure. Best to you in this next phase of all the things that you're doing. I think it's super exciting. Thank you, Karen. Such a lovely experience chatting with you. I appreciate how open and honest you were about your experience in the CIA and also what prompted you to leave and start this next chapter. I loved what you said about being part of something bigger than yourself, and it's clear that you have a sincere passion for mentoring and supporting women as they grow professionally. I also really liked what you said about being a tapestry of your experiences, both the good and the bad, you can't look back and have regrets. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode, and thank you to our Relatable community for listening to these discussions. If you get a moment, please subscribe and rate the Relatable podcast. We can be found on your favorite streaming platform. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected. <laughs>